writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the Right Pack. In this episode, the Right Pack is going to explore how the children's genre has changed over the years. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back to Right Pack Radio. This is your host, producer, crazy person, David Allen Lucas. Ah, currently working on his, working on two projects at once, I will admit it. One is a fiction book and one is a non-fiction book. The non-fiction book is about using the katana correctly and how to fight with it. And then the other book is, well, stay tuned. I don't <laughs> want to go into it except for I will tell you the working title is Splintered Eye. I was glad that it was Splintered Eye. I half expected you to come out with a completely different one. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's a different one. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, well, and that one that was last week. This week we're writing a completely different one. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> anyway, and also with me, and we do have a cast of thousands, so please stay with us on this. Also with me today is my lovely co-host. Hi, I'm Kathleen Kayembe. <laughs> <laughs> She's popping beers. <laughs> yeah, I have driven her to drink. <laughs> no, she's It's caffeine-free Sprite, guys. Uh-huh. Well, sure. Okay. Anyway, yeah. we're not endorsed by Sprite, so I mean, it, it mm-hmm. it's speculative fiction juice because I'm a speculative fiction, speculative fiction writer. Um, I also write romance in the Pandemica Second Indita, and um, I uh, am just back from ReaderCon and my trip. And I did not win a Shirley Jackson award for my novelette. But they gave me a stone in true Shirley Jackson lottery fashion, (laughs) so I could throw it at the winner if I so chose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. No. But you know like they give they give stones. Yeah. To the nominees. The fact that you were nominated is fantastic, though. I mean, just Absolutely. astounding. Also with us, we're going to miss her next week because she will be Leaving on us. her way out of St. Louis to go on her new adventure in life. But she will be joining us, hopefully, as she can, <laughs> remotely. And that is the one, the only. Hi, I'm Chanel HN. I write speculative fiction. I write literary fiction. I write all sorts of nonsense. Good times. Um, when is this airing? Uh, sometime in August. Sometime in August, I will... Let's see, considering that I already have homework for a program that I haven't started yet, um, I will be up to my nose in critiques and writing short stories, etc. And loving it. <laughs> and what where, What are you doing exactly? I'm creative writing Master of Fine Arts at the University of New Orleans. There we go. So we know we're all going. We're partying down from Mardi Gras. <laughs> it down yeah, to We're gonna have a hard time squeezing into her dorm room. <laughs> we'll make it work. My two hundred square foot apartment. <laughs> yes, and also with us is the artist extraordinaire. Uh, I'm Jennifer Solzer. I'm a children's book author and illustrator. This is my topic. I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the middle of somewhere in August. So if it's before the seventeenth. Uh, you can join, come see me at Pop Culture Con in St. Louis, where I'll be selling Threadcaster, which is my YA, which is also children's, my YA fantasy novel, and Dog Park, which is a legit children's picture book. So that's firmly in children's. It's all. It'll also be my birthday on the 18th. So happy birthday to me! There you Yay. go. Yay. And you're also gonna be at PenCon. I'll be at PenCon. I'll also be up in Quincy, Illinois, for the big read. If you live up in that area, when's that? It's September the nineteenth, thirteenth. I don't know. Uh, Look it up. But and and September ninth in Columbia. In Columbia, yes. If you're in Columbia, we'll be there down there on September ninth. George and I will for a panel of professionals. But the. um, (laughs) Whoa! And Ryan's been. That's that's the sound of the professionals fainting. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Fainting. But I bring up the big read because we'll actually be talking. I'll be teaching children about doing graphic novels. So that's children's related. And also, if you have a teenager, specifically high school, who's interested in that, look up the Quincy Library and see when that's happening, and I'll be there. And then in October, you will be at... 
Archon. Archon. Pen Con Archon. Yeah. I have a lot of cons coming up. You do. I, I do. Uh, I'm a little, I'm, I'm pre-weary. How about that? There you go. <laughs> and also joining us today, we haven't been able to have him physically in the studio for a while, so, because he's a little bit busy. Oh, just a bit. With, just just with, with a baby, if nothing else. Yes. From the parts unknown, to borrow what Kathleen said, <laughs> the one, the only. Hi, this is uh, George Saroy. I am, uh, I'm so happy to say this. President Emeritus of the Missouri Writers Guild. Um, not to, uh, I, I had a wonderful time as as president of the Missouri Writers Guild, but I am very glad that that uh, responsibility is is with uh, someone else, um, um, and they're doing a wonderful job with that as well. Um, I am also an author of science fiction for the young adult reader. You can get uh, both Excelsior um, and Ever Upward Part Two in the Excelsior Journey, both uh, YA novels. Uh, you can get them in paperback, ebook, and very soon in audiobook. Excelsior is already out in audiobook. Um, and you can also get the complete five part serial from Parts Unknown in one big volume now. I've since uh, kind of taken all five books and condensed them into one larger one. Um, I will, uh, in addition to what, uh, what Jen said, I will also be at Pop Culture Con. Um, I will be at PenCon. I will be at Archon. Um, I will also be at the Columbia Writers Guild um, panel on September 9th. Um, and there was one other one that I think, you know, like as of right now, that's kind of escaping me. Uh, but I know I have, you know, like some other ones lined up. Um, since this is in um, likely mid-August or so. I'm really glad so many of you came to my book signing on August 4th <laughs> over at the 6 North Cafe. Um, I am real. I was, it was great seeing so many of you. Yes. <laughs> we, know, we know that will happen and then also too that you listen to and we still can't announce it here on the air because everybody who's sitting around the mic does not know what we're going to be talking about. George and I do and I'm kind of keeping that as a hint. Uh, hopefully you caught the announcement that occurred on August the 6th? The 6th, right? yes. yes. And we'll tune in on October 2nd. Yep. It, you guys are having like October a 9th. joint... October 9th. October 9th. October 9th, thank you. Yeah. You're having a joint presidential convention session, right? That's how we normally hang out. Exactly. <laughs> um, stay tuned. And also with us is the Sky Commodore Admiral, whatever, a pirate. A pirate? <laughs> yeah, why not? Thank you. Okay. Let's turn into a Let's do an R. Yeah. I don't know what that was, but uh, yes, I am Brad R. Cook, and I do write a bunch of steampunk. I write for kids, uh, middle grade, and YA. Uh, I am a member of SCBWI, which is uh, the big young writers organization out there. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of stuff uh, probably coming down the pipe, and uh, I will not bore you with all of it. So go check it out at bradrcook.com. Excellent. And also with me is my former competition for that. Who will get their first draft done? I'm not in that competition anymore. So just yeah. Well, I, I think it. that uh, contest is just on hold. I think we'll start it up again in a few weeks. But I'm Melanie Lucas. I will be. Getting back to writing soon is maybe when I get my new glasses. We'll see. Because um, <laughs> we know if her health situations are secured, yeah. we'll figure it out. Seeing is very important to writing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you've been published in scientific papers. Yes, under Melanie Polaney. But th those are um, definite nonfiction papers meant for professionals. At some point in time, maybe I'll write something more for uh, 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 research related as in the process of research, and that would probably be boring, but at least understandable to the general audience. <laughs> Fair enough. By contrast. And with us, with us back from the desert of the unknown, known as college, now she's back full. I, you're, you're done, right? No. Okay. No. no. Oh, we I still have this until December. Uh, well, I was hoping. Anyway, um... The, well, first off, you're going to introduce yourself as a children's author, then the, then the more seductive side, so yes. go for it. So, uh, I write children's books under the name Carrie Lee Williams. I have two of them out currently out. Um, you can find them on Amazon. 
And then my more adult stuff is under Lee Savage. I write the erotica for the Truly Wicked. And the newest thing out is we finally did an audiobook for Goldie's Three Bears. Ooh. So you can find that now. And who was the voice actor for that? And that, it wasn't me. <laughs> I know that. Our wonderful panel member over across from me, George. Excellent. <laughs> That must have been an adventure. Just right. Right. <laughs> Which he uses a different name for, and I'm blanking on the name he uses for that, for because it's um, different than what he normally voices over for. It it was it was it was uh, just a um, a last minute decision to go ahead and uh, give it a different name and not you know like have someone hey you know like let me look up this guy who wrote. Excelsior. What's this? <laughs> Is this a fairy tale? No. <laughs> but I must say, it's, all, it's already doing really well. I mean, it's been out for less than a week, and we're already selling. So, yeah. Okay, we've only, for those who are listening, we only got two people left to go. So, next is our <laughs> Madame of Murder herself. Fedora Amos. I write Victorian Who Done It, like Jack the Ripper in St. Louis, and Mayhem at Buffalo Bills Wild West. Coming in 2019, have your ticket punched by Frank James. I'm also president of Greater St. Louis Sisters in Crime, and my next appearance will be at the end of September, and I don't remember the exact date, but I've been invited by the St. Louis Public Library to a brunch, which is for favorite mystery writers of St. Louis. And coming to us out of the woods in Hannibal, Missouri... Go for it, Ryan. I'm, uh, I'm Ryan P. Freeman, and I write fantasy. Uh, I uh, have a couple of works that are already out, and uh, I recently got signed with uh, an Morphosis Literary Agency, and uh, if my dogs don't bark too loud, um, I uh, will have my latest work uh, traditionally published, uh, tentatively called Nameless, which is going to start reaching out in the fall to uh, publishers. And uh, I um, um, just love writing fantasy. I don't know what else to say. There we go. Yeah, enough. <laughs> and he was recently picked up by Metamorphosis Publishing Literary Agency. So there's uh, hopefully future come on that. Okay, to start us off, I have a question for the group about children's literature, children's genre. And everybody who around the table knows what I've said before, so I'm going to say this here. In the 19, late 1980s, early 90s, depending on what the hell I took that class in college, the concept of children's literature would not allow you to write about kids getting hurt, maimed, talk about drugs, stuff like that. Uh, there's a whole story there. I took a class and had to beg the teachers to let me write a middle school book instead of a, instead of a grade school book. Because I don't think in grade school like writing, at least back then. Definitely not the Leave it to Beaver style. So, how has the genre changed? Have we gotten past Leave it to Beaver? Is Leave it to Beaver still out there? Take it away, those who write jokes. Go. Yes, it has. Um, There are more dark stories now that express um, topics to help children get through issues like death, drug abuse... Um, uh, disabilities, too. There's a whole genre on discovering about, you know, living with your disability or how to handle other people with disabilities just to try to get kids aware of topics and issues now. Okay, I've got Ryan, then Kathleen. Oh, Kathleen, are you dovetailed? Yeah. Okay, dovetail first and then Ryan, then Um, Jen. I, I would like a timeline for some of these changes because I know when I was in elementary school, I read... Uh, cancer romances. Oh, mm. Yeah. So I mean, Lurleen McDaniel was. Yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I mean, like, and then there was Bridge of Terabithia when I was a kid. Oh, and, good. Like, that, that um, so I mean, there there have been some darker things, but like as a, as a whole genre, I'm not sure when that started. Yeah, I'm not sure if we even have a timeline. To be honest with you, with that, um, and there has always been two sides to not always been, yeah. but for at least. 40 years or more, there have been two sides to the children's book market. There's your Berenstein bear type, happy, joy, joy, you know, nothing bad is ever going to happen. And then there is your darker stuff, uh, a la anything like Stranger Things or, uh, 
you know, half a dozen other things that are published out there. Uh, I would say R.L. Stein, but he's more of the funny side of horror. Uh, but there is some dark stuff out there for kids. I don't know. R.L. Stein, under a different name, I believe, got pretty, pretty dark. That's why pretty excellent. Let's find out another name. Are you Dovetail Lee or okay? So I got Ryan Jen Lee. Ryan. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things I've noticed. Uh, to start off, um, big fan of Skyrim, and I still play it to death. And uh, one of the things they have in the game is that you know uh, you, you can't kill kids. You know they're they're non they're non killable characters, and they've set that up intentionally. Um, that's it. Most. Well, I know anyways, but who knows who's playing Skyrim. Um, but this, so that's there. That's, you know, I feel like storytelling uh, is also included in video games. So. Um, just the, uh, the other day, I was down at a coffee shop in Hannibal. They have a bunch of books. And one of them, you know, done in classic, you know, illustrated uh, um, kid-style book. And uh, it was my tattoo story. And it was about, you know, uh, a family and a kid and, a little kid was asking his dad about his different tattoos, and it was just really interesting to see because he didn't even see that. Um, and so I definitely think that that's kind of like a like a bleeding edge way that the industry is changing. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is we mentioned just now um, is um, on the, the darker, heavier side of stuff for for kids. Um, uh, there was an awesome book and also a movie that came out called A Monster Cult with Patrick Ness. It's incredible. And um, and it deals with with a kid whose mom has cancer, but it's like a like a modern fairy tale sort of sort of style. But it's it's amazing, and I feel like you know even for me as a cancer survivor years later, it's meaningful. Um, I know it's made for kids to help them grapple with that issue, but it's almost like transcends the different genre type between. You know, kids' literature, YA, adult. It's just a good story. Jen, and then Lee. Uh, let's broaden this out from like individual examples of specific authors and specific titles and what they do. Uh, children's genre, the children's literature genre, is very, very broad because YA is considered part of children. Mm-hmm. It, incorporates, it incorporates readers from birth to voting age. <laughs> <laughs> so how has it changed? Well, what point along the audience timeline are you talking about how has it changed? There's still plenty of books out there that are sweet and very seen bears-esque because they're aimed at preschoolers. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people don't want to frighten a preschooler too badly. The uh, the the other aspect of children's that yeah, that influences the changes is also that children's media is some of the more heavily regulated media in the world. True. Specifically by the American government, since we are in America, uh, there's such a thing that's in action right now called you know Common Core. Common Core determines what is taught in an elementary school in a public school and how it's taught and at what grade level things are appropriately taught. And those kinds of regulations feed into the traditional publishing sphere of children's. Uh, a blanket rule is if you're an independent pub, you know, independent author and you're publishing your own book, you can publish anything you want. Uh, if you want to scare a preschooler out of their mind, you go ahead and do it because no one, there's no big brother looking down on you telling you you can't do that. But it's whether or not you want to sell books and how you're going to sell them and how you're sort of limiting your audience because you are writing for children, but you are selling to their parents. So it's very complicated. And just the the blanket, how children has changed, we're looking at how the world has changed and how that relates to providing media to children and teaching children because everything, even if you're not writing you know, a color book or a letter book or a, a science book to teach kids specifically, kids are the type of animal that just soaks in information, even wrong information, and tries to put it into their sense of self and into their sense of the world because they're still building that. So that's the responsibility that children's authors, all the way up to voting age, <laughs> 
uh, have to their audience, and that makes it different than writing for adults who have already set their sense of self and already have their ideas. Cool. We've got two dovetails. It's Melanie and myself. Then we've got Lee, and then we've got Ryan. Go for it. Well, you, you were just saying that if you wanted to scare preschoolers, <laughs> I remember this was probably on PBS, and it was a sort of a documentary about the making of Arthur. Okay. And Arthur is a kid's cartoon show. Uh-huh. And what the that. person writing, the, the script writer, whoever it was being interviewed, his point was they were terrible at figuring out what actually scared little kids. Uh-huh. Because there was an episode they had some concerns about, but they went it up, they went off, and it went in, and there were no complaints. The following episode, they had an episode where there was sort of a dream sequence, whatever, and one of the characters got so upset that in the dream sequence their head exploded. <laughs> they got over ten complaints about that scaring the little kids. Uh-huh. No, but none of the adults in the room flagged that as a concern. So what scares kids is very different than what adults think will scare kids. And that is a testament to testing your product on actual children before you declare it. Which is easier to do with a book that you're publishing than an ongoing series, I'll just say. (laughs) Um, Just real quick and then over over to Lee. And that is, as you were talking, Jen, I just remembered that we had talked about a client of yours a while back who was working on a book that was intended to be taught in in school. And if there's any listeners out there who have similar aspirations, I I doubt the education system has changed that much since I got my bachelor's degree. <laughs> if, you, if you want to do your research, look at what the states of Texas and California are teaching. They control the rest of the country because they are the biggest school districts. They've got big school districts that buy lots of textbooks. The industry listens to them. Go ahead, you got dovetail back to me. Yeah, just uh, since you brought up publishing for education, mm-hmm. like for the education system, mm-hmm. uh, if you are an independent publisher, stop that. Become a traditionally published publisher yes. because independent uh, independent authors don't find their way into public school systems. They might find their way into a, a private school, maybe. Uh, more than likely, if you want to teach kids, you are either teaching them yourself at a library read or putting together a writer's guilds, you know, workshop or appealing to homeschoolers, you know, when parents are just buying the books, but then you're back to selling directly to parents. So if you want to get your book in a school system, you need to get published by, you know, Scholastic and then they'll get it in for you. That's not something that you're going to be able to accomplish at this point in history. Right. Over to Lee, then over to Ryan. Okay, so I wanted to mention, too, uh, part of it is, like, what Jen was saying, too, is the change in our audience. So, like, even my daughter who likes to write, her stuff is very dark. <laughs> she And, like, she was telling me one of her stories that she was turning into school, and I'm like, they're going to allow that? Because <laughs> it was so dark. How old so is your daughter? She is, she just turned 15. So, but she did this last year. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like, it was darker than some of the horror stuff that I've seen out there. And it's like, I'm like, wow. So you have to think, but she grew up with more dark, supernatural type stuff seeing on TV. So the whole environment has changed from kids of our generation or generations before us where they couldn't see as much TV like that or read those type of things. So the audience has changed. Mm-hmm. And so, Brad, you're dovetailing, and then over to Ryan. Yeah, so having done kids' writing contests for almost a decade now, I can tell you the kids are the darkest writers I have ever met. <laughs> um, and I mean this. It's a, it's a joke, and yes, please laugh. But it, it is true. They are. They have. They don't have the inhibitions that adults have. They don't have that thing telling them they shouldn't be writing that. You shouldn't be scaring somebody like that. You've pushed it too far. They don't really have those kinds of things. So... I have noticed a trend that, especially when we were, like, the the big read and, or the big write and the other one that I was part of, uh, Young Writers Awards, are in the fall. So they happen right before Halloween. So that, I will admit, also helps to aid into the why they are all scary horror stories. Uh, but it is something I find interesting because we, it's, it's something I find a lot of 
children's authors do, where they dumb down their selves for the children, thinking that children are too simplistic or too whatever to be able to understand these kinds of concepts, to be able to get this kind of stuff. And to be honest, kids turn into little adults way sooner than most parents think. And because parents drive the markets, this is the way that most entertainment goes. But the reality is, is the kids are way smarter and have things figured out much, much earlier than most people give them credit for. Jen? Well, kids think differently than adults do. And becoming small adults, yes, this is true. They're learning about their world and they're forming their world, but they lack that sort of adult perspective. Kids are real self-centered because they they have to focus on themselves because they don't know who they are yet. So, uh, the Arthur story where the kid's head exploded, they said, holy crap, what makes my head explode? I'm scared of my head exploding. Versus a story about uh, aliens coming to Earth and blowing everything up, that doesn't have that same sort of immediate threat to yourself impact. So, kids will write about, you know, ah, and then the vampire killed 500 people. And we go, oh my gosh, 500 people? But none of those people were them, so it's not as scary as if the vampire came in and killed my dog. It's like, <laughs> that's scary. So it's, it's, it, I'm, I'm trying to emphasize this whole audience mm-hmm. thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the kids, we can't guess what kids like. We just have to try. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to dovetail first in an older bread because I'm going to lose it otherwise. Just mm-hmm. remind, just an FYI to our audience, as you know about St. Louis Writers Guild, because a lot of members and officers are on this podcast that we're not acting as St. Louis Writers Guild, as no. FYI. Through ourselves and then through um, GatewayCon, we do have two, actually really technically four, um, children's con- writing contests for kids out there. So if you would pass that on, www.stlwritersguild.org con- under contest. Go ahead, Brett. Okay. Kids movie. It's been out for decades. You know, it's a huge franchise. It is literally about giant reptiles terrorizing and eating people. And it is a beloved series, Jurassic Park. Everyone <laughs> loves this. Kids rush out to the movie theater to watch it. They buy dinosaur toys and you know, on their own time. Uh, you gotta love it. Yet never are they thinking, oh, a dinosaur's gonna eat me. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's a, it's a thing you can get away with. Like, you know, you can have dinosaurs eating people, but a person eating people, that would probably be really bad. I was a teeny tiny child when the first movie came out. And I petitioned my parents so hard to let me see it because I was under 13 and I wasn't allowed to see it. And when I finally did see it, the thing that scared me the most was when the T-Rex ate the goat. <laughs> first goat. Good enough. <laughs> um, are you dovetailing or you got one? Okay. Ryan and then Fedora. Okay, well, something that uh, Jen was talking about a little ways back um, was uh, a bit about the, um, the demographic. Um, my marketing side, because uh, I also do freelance marketing for authors, um, one of the things that I've noticed following Nielsen, uh, who does national trends uh, for uh, TV, radio, you name it, they do, they do it all. Um, they're saying that the Generation Y... Uh, uh, most of the audience we're, we're talking about here, um, they're, they're the most plugged-in generation ever. Um, and, I, and I think kind of goes without saying when you say plugged-in, um, they devour uh, um, stuff that, I don't know, I would consider more for more, more mature people, um, and they love it. And it's so interesting to watch, because um, I feel like there's definitely a generational shift in the sort of content they devour, and it's sort of like, complexity that they're able to, to, to deal with. I don't know how many times um, through my work with nonprofits and whatnot in Missouri, the kids come up and, and they'll talk to me and they'll be bringing up stories that, you know, real life stories um, that that I couldn't, I don't think I could fathom at their age. Um, it's, it's such, uh, I don't think we can say it enough um, to not underestimate them. The not write down to them to, to, to say stories that matter because they're, they're they're wrapped up in one themselves and and the more that we can write good story, uh, the more we can navigate it. And that's going to bring up a question. I'm going to go to Fedora, Brad, and then I'm going to throw out a different question for people. Fedora, I'm not sure it's so much uh, that children have changed over the course of time as that. 
publishers especially have been completely clueless <laughs> as to what's going on. <laughs> Take, for example, the the person that we are celebrating today, Madeline Langle. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. About her. yes. Because <laughs> Sorry, thank you she saying. is now dead, and she wrote her famous book. I, I don't know exactly when. I'm sure somebody does. But it's been many years ago. It was rejected many, many times, even though she was already a well-recognized author. Mm-hmm. And then finally it came into the public, and nobody thought it was going to sell or live forever. But look at it now. And why? Because it's so mysterious in so many ways, I think, with its giant brain that is so controlling and uh, they thought the kids for would death. never understand it. What? They thought it was too complex for kids to understand. It was too complex for adults to understand. Yeah. 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 For, the, the, for those who don't know what the book, the book, book you're talking about is which just very recently uh, was turned into a movie, though I know that most people in this room hate that movie. Well, you say most people. Mostly <laughs> I just said last week that I hated that movie. Absolutely. <laughs> I didn't see it. Yeah. I'm into them. I will. Okay. Excellent. Brad? And then I'm going to throw a question out there. Yeah, so uh, kind of to circle back around... Um, Going to throw out, for those of you who don't know, we're talking about when did all of this change. Well, for any of us who are of a certain age, we all know exactly when it changed, and it was uh, Indiana Jones. Um, So Indiana Jones was a PG movie that came out. It was hailed as a kid's movie. Uh, I myself went to the theater to see it at a ripe, very, very young age that I'm not going to give out. (laughs) Um, But I was was very young. And to the, to, you know, my credit, it was aimed at my generation as well. Uh, I screamed my way through it because I don't know if you've seen Indiana Jones in the last or not uh, the first one. So uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Not Last Crusade. I was just watching that one. That's why I said it. And that's a much better movie. No. Um, uh, point being that there are some really scary things that come out of there. There's like guys impaled on arrows and spikes, and you know, tarantulas. there's all kinds. Yes, giant tarantulas. And the, fir- the whole first sequence alone. Yes. Is just like, uh, exactly. It's basically a like. Are you in or you're out? You know, like, this is what we got going. Needless to say, I was not the only kid who screamed his head off. And this is where we get now PG-13. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which became a thing because of this movie and because of other movies and everything that's going on. So, And actually, I don't think it was that one. It, it was, was the it was, at, it was a two-parter. It was yeah. Gremlin, it was Gremlins and, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Doom. It was 1984. Yeah. Both of them coming out at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it was it was all like Spielberg wanting yeah. to feel you know, like he because Spielberg has a problem with Gremlins kids. is PG, yes. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom PG. Yes. A heart is being ripped out of someone's chest. That movie scared me to death. And it's yes. still beating and catches on fire. <laughs> PG. <laughs> the Sith and he is always winning. <laughs> and so that is when Steven Spielberg um, petitioned to Jack Valenti yep. and said, "Like, can there be a middle ground?" Mm-hmm. And let's also throw out there that this is also coming on the heels of all of the parental controls. Yeah, they're yeah. coming in music. You got that nice sticker that used to exist on album covers that parental I don't know advisory if covers yep. exist anymore. So. <laughs> uh, but yes, parental advisory stickers; those were invented at that same time. Uh, you had all of these, uh, you know, uh, big hearings up in Congress about all this craziness. So that's really when all of these changes came in, and they were done for reasons and all of that. But. Uh, it is. It has affected the way that we aim stuff at children. Uh, the second thing I'm going to throw out, and this kind of comes back around to the advancements we're talking about here and how kids have advanced. So I do a lot of school visits, uh, going in to middle schools and high schools mostly. Uh, and I have to say this. In every high school I have ever been in, I have had a, had a conversation about Game of Thrones. <laughs> Which, to be honest, I don't know if I would let my high schooler watch if I had a high schooler in but, you know, if we maybe we were sitting down and sort of depend on maturity and stuff, but it's not aimed at them. Now, here's the real fun. I would say at every middle school, and I, this is true, at every middle school I've ever gone into, at least one or two kids will bring up Game of Thrones. Now, I do know that this is more about shocking their classmates than them actually having watched any of the episodes. My mm-hmm. guess is they probably watch uh, YouTube clips or something like that. Um, but the point is, is that, you know, even someone as young as a middle schooler is absorbing that content because it's out there on the internet and they can. And for anyone who's a parent out there, they know that their child is more internet savvy than they can ever hope to be. Mm-hmm. And because of that, 
there will always be a curve that benefits the young. <laughs> and I think that that's honestly a good thing, that most older people are clueless, because it keeps them out of young people's culture. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it is something to consider when you're, when you're writing these books, that you don't have to, like, I never aim down. I treat my, my readers as though they are adults when I write to them. But the way that I write, the way the words that I use, the way that I craft a story, that is all very much dependent upon the age group of which I am, you know, aiming. But I don't pull back just because I'm writing for kids. There's no need. You know, I didn't hold anything back when I was writing the Iron Chronicles, and that's for YA. But if you go and you check out the Airdranium Adventures, there's just as much action. There's just as much adventure. The only trick was finding a way to not have a kid use a sword and, you know, solve all his problems. And in doing so, you make a really good kid's book. So, just my advice. George, and then I'm going to throw this out. I'm, I'm kind of bracing myself for the technology that Scarlet's going to have access to in the years to come. So. Yeah, exactly. You're going to actually brace yourself. Yeah, <laughs> that's his daughter, his, his baby daughter. Yeah. But, um, but uh, Daddy, there's... have you seen the newest Hollow book? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, like, there's also somebody else that we need to give credit for uh, for um, for children's writing and everything, which is exactly what Brad was talking about before. And it was it was the um, the insistence on not dumbing down to the writing to their readers, and that goes right to Stan Lee um, mm-hmm. as as a comic book writer. You know, like he was somebody who was basically you know like he was in he was peddling in an industry that he himself was ashamed to be in mm-hmm. for so many years. And it was only when he was given the free reign to actually go ahead and create the characters and create the situations and everything that he wanted to to create. He was writing for himself. And he was basically, by doing that, he was maturing the entire industry to the point where everyone was basically playing catch-up to what he was doing. Um, so you have, you know, like all these different characters that are speaking to all these different social situations. You have... Um, you have a character in Peter Parker who was like the quintessential young adult character mm-hmm. who was dealing with problems and everything while dealing with all these sudden responsibilities and the great power that he, that, uh, that he had because of it. Um, so you have, you know, like that's something that you really, you also need to give credit to when it comes to, um, the development of, of writing and how, how it's all changed because, his method, his way of thinking was really like he can go ahead and just put out some very random, larger word that a children that a child is not used to reading, and they'll go and look it up. Like that's what he was. That's what he had in mind, and that wound up being a big boost to the whole industry and writing in general. Brad and then Fedora, then myself. Yeah. So real quick, uh, you got to give credit to to Stan for basically creating what every kid's show going forward will call the very special episode. Oh, yeah. Because they would have, you know, comic books dedicated to hard-hitting issues, uh, usually just one or two so they could slip them through the censors. And, uh, you know, children's television would follow suit with the very special episode, yep. which would then tackle drugs or, you know, abuse. Or, mm-hmm. Parents talk know. to your kids about that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, you know, definitely a whole thing there. Fedora? Well, I think we might all wish in that case that he turns some of his magic onto real science and real issues and real things that are possible to happen because certainly he could be confusing children in a very serious way when uh, we imagine that Ant-Man, for example, can be a teeny tiny thing or an 80-foot giant in the next section and then 10 seconds later in a movie or in a magazine in a comic book. I think maybe we need a good dose of reality in here somewhere. Go ahead. Kids know the difference between, like, fantasy and reality, do they? Pretty quick. I'm not so sure. Like, if they're watching a Marvel movie, they figured it out by then. Like, and the other thing is, like, not everybody is made to build the technology of the future. Some people are made to inspire it. Like, Gene Roddenberry with with the communicators... Thank you. Now I have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. It is smarter than I am. Like, but we wouldn't necessarily have that had there not been people writing things in fantasy that then those children, when they grew up, would turn into reality. 
Star Trek. And you pad. think we're going to have the ability to minimalize somebody and then make him into a giant? Well, maybe. Well, the, the only place Ant Man really gets it wrong is by saying that it's the same ma- the mass, you know, and stuff, yeah, and doing that whole thing. Because yeah, if you Look simply shrink theory. the space between <laughs> molecules, or you know, expand the space between molecules, you could get away with it. Uh, in scientific terms, Wouldn't the you problem becomes something very seriously? not no because you're you're simply taking all the particles in your body and shrinking them down. The problem becomes when Ant Man punches somebody in the face and they fall down. <laughs> you know because that necessarily would not happen. And if it did happen, then the, he's got a tank keychain that weighs you know like six tons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway. I have serious reservations about all this. Well, and. I'm going to come over here to Jen, who's dovetailing, but I was going to say, just a reminder, more, any comic book suit, generally speaking, is really more mythology than anything else. It is a form of a mythos that is told. Moving on to Jen, then Brad, I'm still waiting, and I think I've got Ryan waiting. Yeah, just saying that, uh, like, content is, is important to be, uh, to be considered, but also the goal of the work. The goal of the comic book is to be fantastical. Uh, there were, mm-hmm. but then we got Bill Nye to teach us about science. <laughs> the world, uh, there's world room in the world for both camps. Well, I don't think Marvel books are, uh, you know, doing much for Bill Nye. Well, well that, that you go to Bill Nye to, to get Bill Nye. He's <laughs> not out there the way Marvel is. Right. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, if you're looking at Marvel, you're looking at the past because Marvel, all the stories Marvel's telling are from the last. 60, 70 years or so. <clears throat> and they're on Point the screens today. That, well, yeah, because we're pulling this content finally. I mean, it's been relegated to comic books for 70 years, and it's finally expanding out into books and TV and movies and all of this other kind of stuff. But we have realized that representation in fiction and representation, the way in which people are portrayed is important. This is something new. This is not something that's been going on for 40, 50 years. Uh, representation before now has been Abysmal. the white guy is going to save the day, mm-hmm. or you know and something. Get the girl, yes, and get the girl. It's a and prize. All of these other things <laughs> that are going to come down. I mean, you know, we have tons of tropes, but the the switch is now we have things that are specifically being written for STEM. So things that are meant that are being written for the sheer purpose of inspiring kids to go into the sciences. You know, so it's a short story about science. It's a, it's a, it's a collection of short stories about sciences. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, the way the character is portrayed. Uh, my character in the gear blade is a chemist uh, and, you know, goes out from that and a biologist. So she's m- almost more scientific than she is a warrior. And I do that very much on purpose because I'm, I'm, Yes, writing towards the trend of STEM and all of that. But more importantly, I want to show well-rounded characters who are intelligent and know how to do things and are more like how we are today in the sense of people are not necessarily more educated than they've ever been or anything like that, but the notion that we can promote the future by, you know, affect the future by getting to the people who need it the most, i.e. the youngest people. What is STEM? So it is science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, but that's it's a it's a goes to course guidelines in schools. It goes to the way in which things are written, how everything's kind of laid out. Um, you know. So uh, it's it's an important new trend that is coming around. This notion of writing almost for uh, social awareness and and to promote the better futures. Uh, than just entertainment. Uh, it's, it's a good topic because that brings us back to uh, the title of our show, which is How Have Things Changed? Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is just me being an armchair you know, sociologist, I think that marks the difference between back in the, the 80s and 90s when we were trying to protect kids from everything that was dangerous to the present day where the public mindset has shifted to... Uh, we should make a more well-rounded um, media sphere for children. You know, make sure that we get people who are writing from different perspectives to write from their perspectives. Um, 
provide stories about refugees and stories about religious differences to children who are learning about those things because we are seeing as adults now we were the ones that were protected from all that when we were younger and so it's evolved that we realized that we grew up knowing so little about the world we were in so now we're providing content we being you know the the current generation of creators that includes people who are older than me and people who are younger than me. The current generation of creators that have grown up on media created for kids when we were kids um, are trying to compensate for what we felt was a deficiency in our own childhood. And that was, that's just my my kind of like soapbox screed to throw out there to the room. I've got Brad and George dovetailing. i still got Ryan and I in, in, in the queue. So you're totally right with the 80s thing. And... There's, there's multiple sides of the 80s that I love. <laughs> First is the notion that kids' television had to have that moral mark to it. So you had G.I. Joe at the end of every episode doing, like, you know, telling kids some moral lesson. Or, you know, like, to be honest, those are the funniest things in the world, and I almost wish they were back. Because how much fun would it be for Steven Universe to, like, you know, or something like that? Well, he puts that in the content mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah, I know. It's now <laughs> in the content of the show. It's not a little thing that gets tacked on to the end. And mm-hmm. the other thing I was going to say is the 80s also gave us the last bastion of the group of young kids who can go out into the world mm-hmm. and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're on their bikes. They can ride anywhere. It doesn't matter if it's to the old mill or if it's mm-hmm. some crazy place over here or... You know, they're just... Find one-eyed Willie's treasure. Exactly. I mean, you know, so there are so many of these. But nowadays, that's not really a story you can tell, which is why Stranger Things and, you know, all of these other stories are kind of being set in that time. And it's almost kind of sad. I almost hope we can break out of that and get kids back to just being able to roam free and go on crazy adventures. Though... I understand we live in a different world where there's some creepy guys out there, so don't let your kids do yeah. that. I don't think there's any difference in the number of creepy kids. We just didn't acknowledge the creepy people existing in the 80s. I don't know. We can, we can debate numbers on that. We can debate numbers on that later, but you know, I, I understand the change, and I'm not meaning that we need a change in society, but it is kind of interesting, and one of the things I love, too, is I was just watching It. It's great. And to be honest, it is one of the best kids-like movies. Now, it's not for kids. Do not let your children watch it. But if you take out all the scary clown stuff, that movie is just a great movie about kids. It's, you know, they're all dealing with something. They're all coming together to help each other. There's this whole back and forth. I mean, Stephen King really went after that genre bad and then twisted it and turned it into a crazy horror movie for adults. So... Uh, it's an interesting thing, though. It's something I just noticed. I was watching it the other night. I assume they took oh, out the sex. Did this. Yes, they did. Yes. Yeah, they they've did. modified it in all the movies. Ever, ever yeah. since they wrote that book and everyone read that book, they all said, "We love the story. We got to do something about the ending." Yeah, yeah. because yeah. Every, everyone else other than Stephen King. Stand by me. It's very much the same. Yeah. The boys are on an adventure together. You know, going out into the world and coming together to solve their problems, and they have the bullying and all that that they have to deal with from the older kids. So. George, Ryan, go George. Uh, to to uh, play on what um, what Jen was talking about, how you know, like a lot of a lot of the uh, the young, um, children's literature and everything um, can introduce ch- uh, children to all these different these different different social uh, social topics. Um, one of the big one of the probably like the biggest you know success from that you know from from the children's literature and everything happened in like the late nineties when. Somebody took a chance on this, you know, this single mom, you know, writing this story about a wizard school. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, like all of a sudden, young adult has become this huge, you know, like uh, phenomenon that that it is now. Because now all of a sudden, everyone is is thinking, get me one of those. So you have one franchise after another coming out. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like because Hollywood is always the last ones to come to the party, they're, you know, trying to come out with theirs. And stumbling along the way, like you know, you you see, like as it's going, like not every single one is going to be that big hit that they are in literature. But it's it's really it's pretty fascinating to see how you know, like how it it all kind of um, how it's all kind of exploded really since Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone came out. I'm asking Jen has a great dovetail, I know, because she's asking. Well, I just wanted to point out that. 
J.K. Rowling is definitely a place on that timeline we asked for. Thank you. That's actually that's actually the question I've been holding <laughs> back here since before the Marvel blow up. Um, so, and I don't know if we're going to get enough time because I do want to talk about. I want to ask a question. I'm sorry, Ryan. I'm actually going to preempt you. My apologies. Sorry, Ryan. Okay. And since, since George has opened up the door for me, and I've been waiting for this, my understanding of a kid. Let me let me explain. I stopped reading kids lit for the most part when I was in fifth grade. By that time, unless it was forced on me by the teachers, I stopped writing for kids when I was in fourth or fifth, sixth grade somewhere in there. I always wrote for towards adults. That was my audience. So my understanding, though, from what I've been told, is that. J.K. Rowling revolutionized and and blew breath of life back into the children's literature field, children's literature industry. I don't know if that's truth or not, but if that is true, how, why, and where is it going now, Jen? Uh, she did. She exploded the speculative side of yeah. children's because obviously we were still writing for kids. All that time. But a fantasy story specifically aimed at children, that was the first really big one that took off. Probably since Madeline Wangle, honestly. Um, and I don't know if that has anything to do with how people feel, how people felt. It might have just been the trend. You know, because we're the, the big publishing houses are always chasing the numbers. You know, what's selling? What are people right. buying to people? Um, most fantasy fans, when they were little, would pick immediately. They would immediately go pick up C.S. Lewis. You know, people aren't writing new fantasy, and then J.K. Rowling arrived. It's the exact same way that I wanted to bring up. Since we're doing timeline revolutionaries, uh, uh, Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. Before Dr. Seuss came along, everyone was reading Dick, Jane, and Spot, and that was boring. It had no in- imagination to it, and so he wanted to create a new easy reader for children. And he found so much resistance to that because it was changing, because it was different. And uh, so it, it's, it takes, it, there are people that we can find as benchmarks that, that move it forward. Judy and I'd Bloom? Say, hmm? would, you, would you put Judy Bloom in there? I would. I would, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Hardy Boys, Judy Bloom, all those. Mm-hmm. Nancy Drew. Nancy, Nancy Drew. Okay. We're going way back in time. <laughs> Brad and then Ryan. I feel like Ryan, I don't know if you'd give me a dovetail or a... Okay, oh, so we did just announce basically all of the major kids franchises that existed before J.K. Rowling. Uh, you know, didn't and mention the Boxcar Children or okay. the Babysitters Club. The, the Babysitters Club, definitely. <laughs> Sweet, Valley. Sweet Valley High. Yes. Oh, I actually actually just want to throw one out too as well that, that I think is it was a very big hit during our time growing up, which is the Choose Your Own Adventure Box. Oh, oh gosh, so yes. huge! You know. I love the Point Club. being. So J.K. didn't invent the genre. Mm-hmm. What she did do was figure out a way to make it so that these weren't just kids' books anymore. They were like teenager books. And in doing so, and the way that they were marketed that way, in essence, inventing YA. Mm-hmm. You know, it, if you're going to credit J.K. with anything, you have to credit her with the, not invention of YA, Define. but the definition and then yeah. the explosion of YA. Because nobody had midnight releases. Nobody had that before J.K. And to be honest, you know, I don't know how many people have it seen going forward. Um, but that's what it did. And then having it be aimed at that age so that the people reading it were the people who were the kids in the books. You know, it, it, it spoke to a generation. And that generation grew up on Harry Potter. Uh-huh. And that generation, you know, graduated with Harry Potter. And that generation moved into, you know, Twilight. adulthood, Twilight. <laughs> basically. Uh, but, you know, then the movies allowed them to go back uh-huh. and relive it all again. So it's been kind of this cycle. Uh, and in doing so, now, obviously, uh, most of her fans are adults. And now we get the adult side of Harry Potter, uh, which is kind of intriguing, too. So it's, it's been a fascinating way to watch this evolve and grow. Um, I'm sure we will see it emulated more. But, you know, that's kind of what you can credit J.K. with. Okay. And I will, while I did say, I have quit, I quit reading Kids Lit. I had picked it up since then. I have read almost all of Harry Potter. Just not the last book. Ryan. Uh, I just don't want to so I don't read the last book. That's kind of my, my forte with fantasy, but I feel like the, the, oldest, the, oldest, the oldest form of children's literature I can think of is fairy tale. I feel like it's kind of evolved from there, 
into like kind of the multifaceted tree that it is now of different genres. Um, but the the oldest form I, I felt was was always fairy tale. Um, I've been on a, a Victorian fantasy kick lately, uh, and you that because even their characters are harkening back to olden times, you know, for them. Um, and it's always those old myths, it's always those old legends, it's always those old kind of fantastic tales. It's something something that makes makes a kid go really, you know, um, that you tell them around fireside or during the old day, or just kind of keep them to calm down or go to bed or whatever. Um, and we're still kind of working that out in our own modern culture, which I think is fascinating. Kathleen, I think you were trying to share something. And I... Oh, no. This is for, for afterwards when I tell you why you need to read books. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, um, moving right over to Jen. If we're going to dive backwards in time. Uh, I mean, fairy... Back to the future. Yeah. Fairy tale was fed out of, you know, Greek myths, uh-huh. out of Bible stories, and those were fed out of cave paintings and fireside tales. And all of those come from the fact that not just children, but humans learn through storytelling. It's all about learning. We are, we are a flocking species. We group together and we learn from each other's experiences, and that's what storytelling is. So, yeah, uh, the fa- yeah, fairy tales, you know, they were written to mm-hmm. tell you that wolves are dangerous and don't get off the path. And they've stayed with us because those things are still true. <laughs> And uh, that's the, the Greek gods and those stories, those were told to children just like they were told to adults. And it all comes back to the fact that stories about people are how we learn our lessons. And oh, I was going to say, fairy tales were not always, you know, marketed, I suppose, to children. Yes. <laughs> they were stories for adults. I have a book of raunchy fairy tales that are definitely not for children. <laughs> but they're out at grim. the same time as all these other things. Yeah. Like, grim is pretty grim. watered down their fairy tales uh-huh. because people were like, oh, for kids. So, I mean, but yeah, I think you're entirely right. Um, we learn through other people's experiences. And one of the benefits of fiction writing in as many forms as we get to learn from the experiences of people who are having adventures we probably will never have, but we get the emotional lesson out of it and, and uh, a model of how to deal with things that are similar in our own lives based on what happened to the characters and how they dealt with it. Which is why it's so important with the modern trends of writing for children that we get people from lots of different perspectives yes. writing about their own specific experiences, maybe not true stories, but stories that come from their perspective to help teach children and adults and everyone reading the books about the experience of someone that they cannot have. Now, I will never know what it's like to... uh, uh, Let's think of something I'll never know what it's like. Uh, I'll never know what it's like to have grown up as a a child in Scandinavia. That's something that I have missed the boat on. (laughs) But I can read a story about that and learn a little bit of what that was like and become wiser because of it. Um, and bring us out with our final well, word. Um, we, we've mentioned that, you know, you can learn how to deal with things through reading fiction about people who have dealt with things like that. But one of the other things that we learn from fiction is empathy with people who are not like ourselves. And that's one of the reasons the push for, you know, own voices and more diversity in what is being published is so important because it's teaching us to empathize with people who have different experiences from our own. And that's really where we as a culture need to go in order to, you know, do well in this world and leave something for the next generations. That was a pre-final word. Final word. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, a, it's a support word. The support word being that uh, authenticity is so important in those things. Because uh, as a little kid, I grew up learning what the what corporate America thought that I wanted, you know, that having living in a an inner city as an inner city black kid was like, and that has changed a lot of uh, that has set a lot of people onto a, a mindset of this is exactly what that experience is. So authentic stories from authentic places that tell real actual things in a in a human way, not a a trope way, not a a manufactured way. 
that's how we learn because we're learning by putting ourselves in the shoes of these people. And if we put ourselves into prefab shoes, then we only learn exactly what we already do. And on that note, tune in next week for yet another interesting topic in the writing industry. Thank you for listening. Please share this and also subscribe on whatever platform you listen to and leave comments. We love them. Thank you. Take care. The new theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.